So, <clears throat> Guy, is this working? Yeah, no, it's okay. Okay, yeah. If you may remember, Guy ended his talk the other night. Okay. Um, his talk on emptiness by saying that the manifestation <clears throat> of emptiness is compassion. So, why is it doing that, huh? Too close to my mouth. Okay. Now it's not working at all, right? <laughs> okay, how's that? <laughs> we could just do this for an hour and you could watch your minds. Okay. Anyway, I want to talk, just offer some reflections on the wisdom and compassion, the unity of, of the wisdom of emptiness and manifestation of compassion. <clears throat> and uh, I really, I, I enjoyed when, when Guy was talking about uh, that the common way in, in the West here we think of the world is, is materialism. <clears throat> and just, I mean, that's obvious, but I just hadn't thought of it that way. And um, it's kind of been a, conundrum, I would say, in, in my life, my whole life of practice, I phrase it in different ways, but, but how to find this, really the balance of wisdom and compassion. But one is in, when, there's, when you're having some sense, some understanding of the fact that everything is really a dream, that everything's really empty of substance. And how do, how do we live in the material world when there's that sense, that understanding that it's just all a dream, just a phantasmagoria, you know, how do, how do we continue to function and care? And then on the other side, the sense of when that isn't so apparent, how do we continue to live with, uh, or continue to open our heart and mind to the infinite beauty and the infinite suffering without either drowning in despair or grief or getting so identified. And so I've often found um, the way my practice goes, which is my life, kind of flipping between trying to understand from those two points of view, both of which are limited, right? But the sense of how do those come together? And um, (laughs) I don't know how it is for you, but sometimes, and also people I've talked with, but sometimes for me, when the, when the understanding the, of, of the emptiness of phenomena and the emptiness of self, that, just as Guy was ending saying, knowing it's not just like a dream, it is a dream. And sometimes that quality is really how perception is shot through. It can happen deep in retreat from time to time. It can happen sometimes in life. And some for me when there's that sense, but it's not complete finished over. So it's like living in this, someone used the great phrase, the great word in one of the, our group meetings, it's like surreal. It's like so, so clear on one way that it's just this phantasm. And at the same time, we got to walk and talk and function and eat. And we do quite with no problem. So the material world's really here. And it can seem like it is one way of perceiving and being negate the other. How do we hold and understand both? And that's a question that can let the thinking mind go wild. 
how can I reconcile? Have you spent a few little moments of the thinking mind trying to reconcile how everything's just a, a dream, a lump of foam, but somehow my knee hurts and I hate it, and it's a lump of foam, but I'm hungry. I really want something to eat. This lump of foam needs some food. And how, how do we uh, kind of hold both of those? So as one person said, it really does seem surreal. It does to me sometimes. But the problem of the surrealness and the trying to reconcile is actually thinking about it. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, understanding does not arise as the result of thinking. Let me say that again. <laughs> understanding does not arise as a result of thinking. It is a result of the long process of conscious awareness. The long process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts, but often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. And I, I really, I've loved that quotation for years and years because in my experience it's so true. Thoughts are the reflection of the material world that describe it really well. The fact that everything's a dream, thoughts can talk about that, but it can't touch the experience. And so trying to reconcile with thoughts is never going to work. If we could just give that up, it's like in that moment there's no problem. Okay, but that's not what I'm really here to talk about. So, but looking at it, one other way of looking at those two is the, the wisdom of not-self, of emptiness, that sense of wisdom that really sets the mind free from clinging, the heart free from craving. And then living in the material world is sort of like the world of action and response. And so what's the link between those two? This is the Buddhist genius, right? Wisdom, action, right thought, intention. Does it sound familiar? The Eightfold Path. Right there, right view, the wisdom of emptiness, the, the second step, wise intention, which compassion is really, you could think of that as wise intention, right thought, which is what leads to action and speech in the world. Somehow you can find everything in, in the Buddha Dharma. So to talk about um, wisdom and compassion really in terms of our deepening understanding of the whole path and our life, they really have to come together. They have to support each other. Of course, this happens naturally. It's just the way things are. So now we're in the material world talking using thoughts. That's what I'll be doing the rest of the talk. And just some, some exploration of wisdom and compassion, how they support each other, how we could kind of get lost in one without the support of the other. So the empty nature, the sense of emptiness of things, that can be a really profound insight, but just by itself, it's incomplete. I mean, we have it many times, the insight, but incomplete. Often people say, um, talking about having had a, you know, seeing anatta, like 
gut level, not just thinking about it, but feeling it or the dreamlike nature as I was talking about. And a really an intimation of the truth that, oh yeah, it really is like that. That's not just a, a metaphor. You know, it's kind of like, it can hit you in many different ways. It can be shocking. It can be freeing. It can make you have a lot of energy. It can be scary as heck. But some of the different things yogis have said to me over the years in describing mm, some kind of reactions to insights into not-self emptiness of, you know, sometimes it's very fearful. I think some people even mention that to Guy after he's talking, oh yeah, it kind of brings up fear, the sense of the emptiness of things. Or, I've written down, these are some words people have said to me over time. The, if, if there's not any self, if it's all empty, it has this sense of just being uncaring, cold, alien, someone said to me, inhuman, indifference, not caring, annihilation. You get the drift. Um, and that can really be a sense of what, um, I think in Tibetan they call it falling into emptiness. The sense of the emptiness of the not-self that isn't supported by the compassionate manifestation, which naturally comes. But it doesn't always, just as with the seven factors of awakening, they don't all grow up exactly together. You know, we're kind of like flipping. Sometimes you might be understanding emptiness, not self more. Sometimes you might be seeing more compassion. Sometimes you might think you've never seen either one of them. You'd give, you know, a lot for either one. But anyway, they're not always growing up together. It can kind of tilt one way or the other. So in this sense of um, not quite seeing the uh, compassionate aspect, but just tuning into the emptiness, we can really, it can become embraced as a view. We, we get a hit of it, really a hit of not-self, but then it becomes a view. This is how it is. And there's some various quotations I really like. One from Nagarjuna, who, as Guy mentioned, is one of the, um, for one of the, best writers, teachers on emptiness, but he said, It is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material, concrete reality, but far more pitiful are those who believe in emptiness. Buddhists say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. And uh, I think I'll, yeah. So we can get caught in that. And so this is where the compassion brings in the warmth, the connectedness to life, to beings, to a sense that it matters what we do even when everything is empty. But compassion also needs the support of wisdom. This is... um, from the Dalai Lama. Because without, without the understanding, really, of emptiness, compassion, we veer off into despair and overwhelm. From the Dalai Lama. <clears throat> compassion must be derived from our insight into emptiness of inherent self. This is where the vast meets the profound. 
without that unity, we can fall into despair. Because with knowing from the emptiness that people's suffering is avoidable, it can really lead us to a more powerful compassion. But without the wisdom of the emptiness also for ourselves, our compassion may be strong, but it is likely to have a quality of hopelessness, even despair. You get a sense of that for yourself sometimes as, as we open up to become much more sensitive to our own suffering, the suffering of the world. There's times that, you know, the compassion is quite beautiful, but it's so easy for it to tip over, at least in my experience, into overwhelm, into a kind of despair, into a kind of a feeling, how can I possibly hold all this or be with all this? And that is when, you know, it needs to, actually be balanced with the deeper understanding of not-self, of emptiness. And so these two, always balancing, always coming together. From Padmasambhava, you know, who was the great founder of the lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. The view, which is really the understanding of emptiness, of not-self, the view is the most important thing However, do not let your action slip in the direction of the view. If it does, you will fall into the evil views of demons prattling on about how goodness is empty, evil is empty, right? doesn't matter what you do, it's all empty. But do not let your view slip in the direction of action either or you will be caught in materialism and ideology. That is why my view is higher than the sky, but my attention to my actions and their effects is finer than grains of flour. That sense of how both aspects are true at the same time. Another Tibetan Padampa Samge. Someone once asked, once we have realized emptiness, Does it still harm us to commit negative acts? And again, that's like falling, you know, the action slipping in the direction of the view. And he said, he was asked that, and he said, once you realize emptiness, it would be absurd to do anything negative. When you realize emptiness, compassion arises with it simultaneously. And so to me, and ongoing in, in... I practice in my life and in talking with so many people, we see for ourselves, you know, in our little ways, okay, we're not up there with Padmasambhava or even close, but in little ways, how as wisdom comes more, compassion comes with it simultaneously. So I want to talk a bit about in our practice, mostly we talk about our practice, a Vipassana here is a wisdom practice, but also compassion is being cultivated in at the same time. So when we realize emptiness, even for a moment, compassion comes with it naturally. And how can it be otherwise? In a moment of, just a moment of insight into not-self. Let's keep a simple insight into not-self. In that moment that the heart-mind is free from clinging, 
That's really what a moment of not-self is. There's no clinging at that moment. Clinging is almost synonymous with an arising of sense of self. There's so much energy is released when it's not bound up, the energy for life, the tenderness for life, to see clearly when the energy is not bound up in this obsessive self-referencing. You know, I think we've mentioned before the Buddha talked about the Kalashas, greed and, and hatred, but really a sense of self, which is arising from that, is a maker of measurement, right? It's what, as soon as there's a clinging, a sense of self, there's a measurement, me and other. And the obsessive self-referencing, even when we mean well, there's no way to recognize the vastness of the situation. There's no way to really see clearly the good of oneself or the good of others or the good of both. This is, I'm quoting from the Buddha. When there is greed, when the mind is obsessed with greed, with hatred, with confusion. And so even in a moment when there's this obsessive self-referencing going on, this making of measurement, me and other, there's no way to see clearly. In a moment when that vanishes, just a simple moment here, and you have many moments like that when the sense of self isn't arising, then all that kind of contracted energy of mind and consciousness and heart is available for just pure presence in this moment in life, for the, just the tenderness, the vividness, the totality of it's like this now. And we can see clearly. It's just a natural occurrence. Without that, even when we intend to do well and we have a compassionate intention, we still can act. I mean, it's not like we have to wait until we're completely liberated before we ever do anything, you know, because our compassion is tinged otherwise. But we really can't see as clearly. I've used this example often because I love it. I heard on the radio some years ago. I'm, I'm thinking it must be true because I heard it on the radio. <laughs> Just like if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? That's uh, the source of a lot of our problems now. Anyway, this bridge that was built in London over the Thames, the Millennium Bridge. And so I I, I love this story. This is a, a bridge that people could walk over. And when it was first opened, I think when it was first, maybe it was the first time it was being inaugurated, and there were hundreds of people were walking over the bridge. And there were so many people that the bridge like started to shake. I guess it wasn't really quite, you know, I don't know what. Anyway, it started to shake. And so it was leaning, I guess, a little to one side. So, so each person thought, oh, what can, didn't think, but just responded, what can I do to help? So everyone moved to the <laughs> other side. <laughs> and that, of course, just made the whole thing worse. So you get a sense, each person trying to do the right thing, but completely in their own little bubble, you know, because you can't really see the vastness when we're uh, caught in the self-referencing. So the wisdom of emptiness allows for a more appropriate, a more wise response. And also this, this question of how can I hold it all? all the suffering, even just one day of listening to the news, you know, so I can't bear it sometimes. Yeah, I can't. That's exactly the point. I can't. And as long as it's I 
resisting or drowning or wanting to do, but somehow hitting a sense of me, that subtle resistance, we can't. And that's, that's realistic. We can't. But in the moment when there's not that sense of I, and it's just passing through, like that, that story I told about the Dalai Lama a few weeks ago, where, where he can just be with people in the most immense suffering and really be crying and there with them, then they leave and he turns to the next person and they're laughing and he's jovial and kidding around. And he's totally present, but there's, there's not an eye it's landing on and holding on to it. It moves through. So not that we should hold that out as this is how I have to be all the time. But play with noticing it once in a while when it happens here. With little things that happen here. That's what's so great about being on retreat. It's little things. That's what we can do. So our practice here, our simple moment-to-moment mindfulness practice here is actually what is also developing the capacity for greater and greater compassion. As the Dalai Lama says, if I can find, and since he's Mr. Compassion, we always use him when we're talking about compassion. Sorry, I just have to somehow got my papers all. I could do it from memory, but then I get all uh, out of order. Okay. So, as the Dalai Lama says, how compassion is developed is through deep insight into what the nature of suffering is, right? And how do you guess we get that deep insight? Dalai Lama, by focusing on, by being present with our own experience of suffering. How else? Where else? And so then he says, then as we're more present, without resistance, without judgment, with our own suffering, that insight into compassion, it begins to strengthen and it turns into not only compassion or being able to be with our own suffering, but it broadens into a sense of empathy with more and more beings until it really turns into the vastness of bodhicitta. And this is really, this is really going on in the simplicity of our mindfulness practice. So we start where we are, wherever we are. And that's why the difficult, the really difficult moments and hours and days of our retreat are so important. It's not just that we're developing wisdom, but also they're the ground, the seed, for really developing compassion. Sometimes the wisdom shows up more, sometimes the compassion. So whatever's arising in this present moment, mind, body, whatever's occurring, inner, outer, yata, bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment. This moment is the result of all the previous conditions can't be changed, right? how the heart-mind, how the attention is meeting this moment, the quality 
in the mind and the awareness that's meeting this moment. This is the place that we are cultivating and developing. This is the place where wisdom and compassion can grow, where the old habits are being changed. So how we meet what's currently arising doesn't mean it should go away, but any moment that you're just simply present with fullness of attention, without greed and aversion, that's a moment that actually has the seed of wisdom and compassion in that moment of awareness. We kind of, in the material world, we get lost in looking for results. It's not that way. Pema Chodron, if we begin to get in touch with whatever we feel with some kind of kindness, some kind of tender attention, our protective shells will begin to melt. And we will find that more areas of our life are workable. As we learn to have compassion for ourselves, the circle of compassion for others, what and whom we can work with and how becomes wider. Just what the Dalai Lama says. Can we begin to just have the idea when we're in these difficult, really difficult times and you can't, so one way is you can't really be mindful of it. It's not going away. It's not getting better. Can we just have the idea to meet it with simple kindness, just to touch it as it is? This is so not our habit, right? The Dalai Lama again, when he was asked about what looks like a lack of compassion in human society. So for the moment here on retreat, each of us is a representation of human society. So if at times you feel a lack of compassion in yourself, even towards yourself, you could listen to this. He says, Perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, fueling or reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. So just think about it. And and maybe this isn't true for you, but how often in our own internal experience on retreat when something really difficult is going on, does it seem just natural that we have some form of self-aversive reaction? You know, kind of self-blame, if I was doing it right, this wouldn't happen, or this is so bad, or I hate it, or it's somebody else's fault, also a kind of aversive reaction. But just really beating ourselves up, going negative, all the instructions they give, and I can't do one of them, and it's because I'm useless and I'm hopeless. Does any of this sound familiar? Does it ever? And really, not just saying it, but totally buying into it. And even more, have you ever noticed how the really self-judgmental negative comments about yourself and your practice masquerade as wisdom? Yeah, you are really an egotistical, hopeless yogi. Look at how much the sense of self is arising. You are the most egotistical person here. Oh, that's egotistical. I can't even criticize myself without being (laughs) egotistical, you know, and it keeps on going and keeps on going. And that's, that's masquerading as wisdom. 
And then the, a different voice, you know, a different thought comes in and goes, well, that's really interesting. You're really seeing clearly. Oh, look at that. That's really egotistical again. You know, so like the, the wholesome, compassionate voice, no, that's just weakness. The negative, self-blaming voice, that's wisdom. That's what the Dalai Lama is talking about. We don't really embrace, we don't really see it. So could we have the possibility, if you can't, you can't force compassion, okay, God damn it, I'm going to be compassionate now with this back pain. Compassion, compassion. Oh, I really love you. <laughs> that doesn't work. So just the simple bringing mindfulness, just bringing mindfulness, coming face to face with the experience. is one way Sayadaw Pandita would describe mindfulness, coming face to face, just as it is. Beginning there and just seeing it as it is, is also can bring along a compassionate attitude. And it may be that you need to begin by coming face to face with the dosa, with the anger, with the judgment. That's the thing that's happening. Coming face to face, we see it for what it is. This is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. Thoughts and feelings have no intrinsic solidity, form, shape, or color. When a thought of anger arises in the mind with such force that you feel aggressive and destructive. Is the anger in your mind actually holding a weapon? Can it actually burn things like fire or crush them or carry them away like a violent river, that thought? No, anger, like any other thought or feeling, has no true self-existence, not even a definite location. It is just like wind roaring in empty space. I love that. So let that thought of anger roar, and it just roars and roars itself out. Kensi, instead of allowing wild thoughts to enslave you, with mindfulness you realize their essential emptiness. Examine the nature of anger, the nature of hatred you will find that it is no more than a thought. And when you see it as it is, it will dissolve like a cloud in the sky. The essential emptiness, even of anger, roaring in empty space. So in that moment, that's the moment of emptiness bringing in, as soon as you see it roaring in empty space, any sense of judgment, anger goes away. It's, oh, that's just what it is that simple touching can allow for compassion to arise. Coming face to face then with the actual thing that the aversion was about, seeing it as it is can completely change the experience and allow compassion to come. An example, a daily life example, uh, the public radio station over the last two or three weeks has been having a series of uh, reportings on various aspects of all the refugee crisis in Europe. And so this particular um, one I thought was very interesting. They were talking about uh, in Calais, in France, you know, there's a really huge refugee camp that's called the jungle. And it's just got thousands of people. There's, it's been the, the center of a lot of agitation and anger and uh, the refugees there are really trying to get out of it and get over to England, but it's, it's getting a lot of press. So this, um, 
reporter went there and the, uh, some of the French residents of Calais were having big demonstrations of wanting the jungle to be gotten rid of, demonstrations against the refugees. And so he was, the reporter was talking to some of the, the French people that were demonstrating, saying, you know, they hated them, they should go away, they hate you know, the usual. And so he talked to a 68-year-old woman who was, was protesting and really angry and they should go and hated them. And he said, well, have you ever been there? And she said, no, I, I never did go there. And so she agreed to go with him to visit the jungle, to just see what it was like there. So, so obviously already she had some openness that she would even do that, but she was afraid to go by herself. So they went and he was just describing, because it's like so many people. And he said she was just first amazed by how many people there were there, how many children, how tough the conditions were, and the incredible ingenuity she saw of how people were surviving and taking care of themselves and their families and washing themselves, how many children there without their parents. And she, then she talked to a young man that had been a law student in Afghanistan, and he was, his whole village had been destroyed, completely destroyed, and he had managed to get out and had made it to, to Calais, to the jungle, and they're all kind of stuck there. And he was describing how also, because some of the, the refugees were trying to get out and jump on trucks, you know, to get over uh, to England, but so some of the other, like this young man, the, the law student, said he felt he would just be going out for a walk and he felt like they were targets of the truckers and sometimes targets of the police and really feeling, you know, completely uh, vulnerable and unsafe. Um, and she was completely appalled. She left and she said, this is a free country, or I thought it was. I didn't know that people were being treated like this. And she went to the, um, the offices of, in the place and said, what can I do to volunteer and help? And that was, that was the outcome of her, her one-day visit there. And I, I love that. Because it's just that the, the fear, the anger, the hatred is just from not coming face to face with seeing just the situation as it is. And that simple coming face to face, breaking through the preconception, oh, it's like this now. She didn't go hoping to be compassionate, just naturally arose a sense of, wow, this is really suffering, what can I do? That's really, I think, how our practice works, how simple mindfulness works. The, uh, the great author James Baldwin had a, a, a line that I really love. He said, that, an enemy is someone whose story we have not heard. So take that back to yourself. When our experience is feeling like it's an enemy to us. So what's the story we haven't heard? We're like that, that French lady going into the jungle okay, can I just put down my preconceptions and turn my gentle attention back onto this experience here that I'm experiencing as being so unbearable or off or bad or whatever it is. And this is where also we can see that the wisdom gives rise to compassion. Just to give an exam- examples from your, own, from your own time here, and coming, I uh, also want to mention Bhikkhu Analayo, who talks about, he's talking about um, in, in one of his 
recent books, Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhist Meditation. At one point, he's analyzing some of the different suttas of the Buddha and, and pointing out that in one sutta, the Buddha mentions that penetrative wisdom, really penetrating wisdom, comes from insight into the Four Noble Truths. And vast wisdom finds its expression through compassion, through intending to benefit oneself or others. Now, I would like to point out everywhere I've read that the Buddha talks about compassion, he doesn't just say for others. It's always oneself and others. So sometimes I think when we're thinking about what compassion should be, it's like out there and we forget we're also a human being in need of compassion. And that's another way you get into this kind of compassion burnout, you know, forgetting that this Nama Rupa needs the same care as that Nama Rupa. You want to look at it that way. So anyway, he's pointing out that when we meet an experience that seems like it's so suffering, we're so caught up, and with the steady mindfulness, we suddenly see it through the lens of the Four Noble Truths, compassion might automatically arise. I'm going to give a simple composite example. This is no particular person, but this is a composite of a lot of people <laughs> saying a lot of things here. But so simple things. When something is really causing you distress, but a simple thing like the sight of a person that for whatever reason triggers your judgment, your comparing, your unhappiness, and you keep seeing them and it keeps triggering, but you're just all balled up in that suffering. Or there's a sound that's going on that keeps happening and it's really triggering anger, despair, blame of oneself, blame of another, but we're really caught in it, right? Can you relate to how that can happen? And we can be caught in it and think we shouldn't be caught and try and talk ourselves out of it and yada yada, but it's just still a big ball. Bring your attention, when we bring the attention right in, say, well, what's actually happening here? So say it's sound and bringing the attention, just really with the hearing, noticing the unpleasant, seeing the arising of all the aversion and the self-blame and the other blame and the story and it shouldn't be and this and that. And then keeping us, oh, that's really the first noble truth, suffering. You may not say it, but that's what's happening. Seeing the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is the reactivity and the delusion in the mind. It's not the sound, it's not the sight, but it's all that reactivity and identification. And the continuing mindfulness, seeing this whole process start to break apart. And really it's the Eightfold Path saying, oh, just being present with what is. Hearing is like this, aversion is like this, sound is like this, oh, and the whole thing drops away. And in that moment, there's a sense of really cessation of that suffering. You get a sense just like that, there's the whole Eightfold Path. That's the Four Noble Truths right there. You don't think of it. And so many people have mentioned to me and to other teachers, through some experience like that, really quite simple, although it could have been a huge storm of suffering. When it comes to that wisdom piece through the Four Noble Truths, seeing it clearly, spontaneous and sometimes really profound compassion metta has arisen. Sometimes it's manifested as metta compassion for one's own self for having been caught in that. Sometimes, and many people say, the, 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 
the, the sight, the person who triggered the sight or the sound or whatever. There's just spontaneous waves of compassion and caring and non-separation that comes. Not self-generated. You know, it's different from when we're really angry at someone and we're, we're trying to crank up the metta, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, you know, really, and we're trying to get over it. And maybe we get a little, you know, squeegee bit of metta going. But this is, uh, you know, well, thank God, Elise, but this is like just spontaneous because that sense of the obsession with me is gone. And there's just the compassion that comes about seeing the suffering in the world from confusion. And people are quite surprised by that sometime, but this is the natural result of wisdom, the manifestation of compassion. So just notice when that happens. And see how the simple mindfulness, the steadiness of mindfulness that leads to clear seeing is the cause for compassion to arise. And when it's there, just explore it, feel it. You don't have to own it, but just see how that goes. And when it goes away, because it will, then we just meet the next experience face to face. No need to hang on. And then another way, sometimes in our practice, in our life, the way into wisdom, this is how, how compassion came through wisdom, but sometimes the way into wisdom is through cultivating compassionate intention when we can't really come face to face with something. I've, I feel in my own life, I notice this all the time, that when I'm feeling, I start to notice over some whatever, sitting, walking, out of retreat, it doesn't matter. But I start to realize I'm feeling quite disconnected somehow. You know, you think you're really present, you're trying to be present. Mindfulness is, it seems like it's there, but you have that feeling of disconnect, you don't quite know what's happening, but whatever's happening doesn't feel good. You know, there's something going on, you don't know what it is. And I find almost always it turns out that there's some difficult or unpleasant experience, it could be a little tiny thing or it could be a strong emotional, whatever it is, that there's a a resistance, a denial I'm trying to avoid, to to not have to touch into, maybe unconsciously, you know. Oh yeah, I'm looking at that. Oh yeah, that's over there, yeah, I see it. And you can't quite get there. That's always, I find, leading to the sense of disconnection, being out of touch. kind of keeps us locked in our little bubble of me and other and distance and separation. When we have that dosa lens on, back to the Buddha, we can't see our own good or the good of another or the good of both. And we can't make clear decisions. There isn't wisdom. So just a personal example then of um, in an in a experience where the, the resistance to the unpleasant was there not quite recognized, but the mindfulness wasn't really getting, connecting, and wisdom wasn't coming, but the actual cultivation of compassion allowed for the uh, attention to settle into what was happening and wisdom come. This was a, quite a long time ago, years and years ago, and I've, I've talked about this other, other retreats, when I, I um, started to develop uh, an autoimmune disorder, a physical disorder, and uh, it had at that time, it, it ended up being mild, but it had at that time rather strong symptoms that were affecting me and I couldn't walk very well and, 
there's a lot, there's some kind of pain. And they didn't really know what it was for one of those, you know, they don't know what. And even when they give it a name, then they still don't know what, and they can't do anything anyway. But here's a name for it. But anyway, at that time, which went on for some months before I really knew what it was, and it was worsening steadily. And it had the potential, I mean, I've been really fortunate, but it had the potential that it could have gone in a direction that would have, would have killed me. So that was unknown at that time. But even just the living with the soul, you know, I was, I think I was here during part of that time teaching a three-month retreat and just dealing with the physical body and the idea in the mind of what it could be. So I was pretty aware. I wasn't like in a big state of fear or a huge state of aversion or anything. It really felt like I was pretty present and just dealing, being mindful. But I really, I can tell you the whole thing because I didn't see it at the time. There really was this subtle background sense of, you know, if you were really spiritual, you wouldn't have this. Have you ever had that, you know, that thought? (laughs) If you really could think the right thing, then this particular thing would go away. Or this disease is caused by my lack of, you know, my holding on, my aversion, whatever. I just want, I'm here to say these thoughts are really not helpful. True or not, I have not found them to be very helpful. So that was kind of in the background. Well, if I was really spiritual, I wouldn't be having this all my practice, you know. And Sayada Upandita was here and talking about how when you're really giving, he gives all these examples of yogis developing the seven factors of enlightenment to this great degree of balance and curing themselves of all these amazing diseases. And we would sit around and go, how come we never get cured of anything? How come we don't know? You know, it doesn't, kind of leads to doubt, not helpful. (laughs) But anyway, that was going on. And uh, I mean, at some point later, it dawned on me, you know what? Even the greatest masters, even the Buddha, he died. <laughs> he died. <laughs> Ramana Maharshi got cancer, you know. <laughs> you think he couldn't have thought his way out of that? <laughs> it's like, like, duh. But that, that, that wasn't the wisdom piece. That came later. But so, the, but so there's this subtle thing. But trying to be mindful, trying to see this and that. And everybody I knew said, had me advice. You should go live in Arizona because the cold really affects me. You should only eat, you know, non-wheat, non-dairy, non-caffeine. I did that for a while that really cheered me up and (laughs) all kinds of stuff and I mean the doctors didn't know what to do so you have to make a decision but when you can't see clearly the decision comes either out of fear or out of denial so anyway some point during during that fall um, a Tibetan uh, lama, a really beautiful old man, just happened to come by here for the afternoon. That just happens here sometime. And he went and I saw him. He gave me some little blessing on the head and said, okay, say this mantra, which I didn't even, it was Tibetan. I had no idea what it meant. I looked it up later and it was a, a compassion mantra. So I said, sure, what the heck, you know, it can't hurt. So I'd sit up here and once a day I'd just be doing that mantra. I wasn't trying to cultivate compassion or anything. I was just doing that mantra. Really, you know, it changes the habit of the mind. And so just without, real, without consciously making it happen, the whole kind of inner weather system switched to this sense of compassion for the body. And I really felt the body as, not as Carol or me, but just as a being, wow, 
I didn't realize I was holding this negativity, this kind of blame, this resistance, and this, this for bodies going through the suffering, you know? There's a body over there. Would you hate it? Would you blame it? You just do what you could. It changed everything. It was just this sense of tenderness and then the resistance and the self-blame and all that, you know, just, just vanished. That was just aversion. With the compassion, the aversion was gone. And with the compassion, the awareness, the attention, the present could just touch what was going on moment to moment in the body, in the mind. And I was really, I had, you had to make decisions what to do. I could make much more clear decisions, not based on fear and not based on denial. So, you know, should I give up teaching and do everything and go live in a corner in Arizona in case it got worse, you know? Or should I just pretend nothing was happening and carry on? Anyway, I ended up, just after that, um, some good friends, Joseph was one of them, were going to India for a, a short visit to see Deepama, which I'm so glad I went because that's the last time I saw her before she died. So I thought, they said, come on with us. You know, it's only for a couple of weeks and you'll be with us. You can take care of you, which was, I, I just had trouble like walking, like getting into rickshaws and stuff like that. So I thought, yeah, great. So I went to India, which, you know, other people thought, you're nuts. You can't go to India. What if this gets worse? But it wasn't worse. I could see how it was. It was fine. And in India, I could, you know, drink chai and eat chapatis. <laughs> I got so happy. It was really nice. And it was, uh, it was fine. It was fine. And then you just do what you have to do. You can see clearly. You can make choices. You can see your own good or the good of another. And that, that compassion intention then led into the coming face to face into the development of wisdom. So both these aspects are going on in our practice here in different ways, taking turns. There's, of course, other ways we can cultivate compassion in doing the compassion, Brahma-vihara as metta. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but just to point out that there's the wisdom of moment-to-moment mindfulness and the compassion intention can sometimes bring us into the wisdom. Another way, though, that compassion needs wisdom is wisdom in the form of equanimity. Because even when we have uh, relatively clear seeing, I mean, we're not our host, but relatively clear seeing and touch, compassionate action with as much wisdom. So say when I was making my decision to go to India or whatever, you have to make choices, do action for yourself or for the good of another. The, the wisdom of equanimity is one, knowing that no matter how caring we are, how wise we may be, without any action, we can't ensure or control the results. We can act as best we can from compassion. The compassionate action may not be received at all. It may be thrown back in our face, and that's the least of it. But that's possible. Can we then cultivate equanimity, not either keep forcing it where it's not helpful, or take it personally and fall back into negativity? And this needing to balance equanimity and compassion, again, is in in some suttas from the Buddhist time that Analayo pulls out and mentions in his book, just a couple of quick examples. One where the Buddha um, was called 
to this, this, the bhikkhus in the place called Kosambi were having a huge quarrel about some little minor point of etiquette, but it had completely split the sangha. They were, they were, you know, brawling with verbal daggers, is the way it's described in the sutta. And the lay people were losing their faith, you know, who are these guys, you know, just fighting over this stupid thing. So the Buddha was called and asked out of compassion to come and talk to these guys and straighten them out, basically. So he came and he's, you know, basically saying, what are you doing fighting? And you know, come on, let's get together. And basically, you can tell I'm paraphrasing, but basically they said to the Buddha, don't bother yourself with this. We'll deal with it. You just go off and abide in a peaceful abiding. And so the usual requisite three times, he says, come on, get it together. What are you doing? You foolish, you foolish men he said, don't bother yourself. We're dealing. We'll take care. You go off. And so after the third time, he did. He took his robe and his bowl and he wandered off. So basically, it's like with equanimity, okay, you really see clearly, I can't do anything. (laughs) These guys are hopeless. (laughs) Basically, he did. He basically went off and go, you foolish men, you know. And he went off and found three bhikkhus who were living together in perfect harmony and metta, living, combining like milk and water, another whole beautiful sutta. But he's really, okay. Then there's another sutta, though, where the Buddha's pointing out that there's times when equanimity isn't appropriate and we need to have the wisdom to see when is action called for. This is also really hard to discern and we're not always going to be able to. So again, very briefly, um, there was a point where Sariputta, I think it was Sariputta, one of the Buddha's main disciples, was giving a talk on a very... um, kind of profound and abstruse point of understanding. I read it and I said, yeah, well, I really don't understand that. So I'm not even going to try and replicate it for you all. But anyway, he was giving this talk. And some of the other really senior bhikkhus were saying, no, that's not true. You're wrong. You know, and they kept kind of basically abusing him in that way. Then they went to the Buddha and Sariputta said this again. And the bhikkhus again said, no, you're wrong. And during this time, Ananda had been there, who was very close to Sariputta, and had heard all this and had just kept silent. So then, basically, then the Buddha says, he turns to, first he says, Sariputta's right. Then he turns to Ananda and says, Ananda, what are you doing when your senior bhikkhu, well-loved bhikkhu, is being abused by his fellow bhikkhus and you just stay here silent? You know, basically, he was saying, this is not the time for equanimity. You should stand up and support your fellow bhikkhu out of compassion. So it's very interesting. And so I find in my life and all of our lives, you know, it's really complex, isn't it? The situations we find ourselves in are complex. Life is ambiguous. There's so many times that we're not always going to have enough wisdom or enough compassion. We have to do the best we can. But equanimity is so essential in both ways. You know, little things like one time... Years ago, I, I went outside at a friend's house and their cat was just in, in, in the process of pouncing on a little baby bird, right? So without even thinking about it, you know, I grabbed the cat and grabbed the bird. So it seems like that's a spontaneous act of compassion. Well, it was. But what was the result of that? The bird was going to die and I managed to prolong its death by about 36 hours, you know? Not good or bad, but I really needed equanimity 
to see that. You know, we don't know what the effects are going to be. And uh, if you've ever had to um, had both the privilege and the responsibility of being a medical proxy for someone who's really sick, maybe even on the edge of life support, and even when you know what they say they want, the situation pretty much always going to be other than whatever you thought about. I mean, I know this from personal experience. And you have to make decisions based on as much wisdom as you can of what they would want, but it also is based on what they want depends on what the decision, what would be the effect of that decision. And whatever the doctors say, they don't really know. You don't really know. And you have to make the best decision you can out of compassion and wisdom. And then have the equanimity for yourself, for your loved one, for the doctors, to stay present with that decision and with the effects however it went. So wisdom, compassion, compassion needs the wisdom of equanimity to stay present in this world, to stay present. And what about really the vastness of the suffering throughout history, but now, you know, of war, of violence, of prejudice, of inequality, of poverty, of injustice, you name it, you know. How do we, sometimes we can do something, but whatever we do doesn't solve the whole problem. The Buddha couldn't fix the world, you know. How can we do what we can and still stay present when we can't? You know, and how do we tell the difference, this vastness of compassion and the wisdom of equanimity, but still staying present, you know, this bearing witness has such a power. So I just want to read from two people who really inspired me in very different ways with the ability to stay present and bear witness and maybe act, maybe not. One, of course, is uh, Martin Luther King. And one, just one thing he wrote in 1963, just at the time of some of the... Um, most violent bombings, some of those church bombings where little girls were killed, and the violent, violent um, of the police against the demonstrators and the jailings. And he said at one point, I have come to see even more that as we move on towards the goal of justice, hatred must never be our motive. I refuse to become bitter. So how can we do that? To stay present really seeing with wisdom the suffering, the, the, the enough wisdom and compassion to keep moving forward, and that, that vastness that allows us not to become bitter and be able It's, it's um, mind-boggling to think of, but moments, moments. And then this is a very different, but the sense also of this bearing witness when there's nothing really one could do but just the bearing witness and the being able to communicate it had a huge, huge effect on a whole people. So this is during um, the, the very well-known Russian poet, Anna Akhmatova, who during most of all of the, the whole, she was a poet from the, before World War I, through the whole period of Stalin's terror and the gulags. And she was very, very well-known, her poetry in Russia. And it's like, you know, the people wouldn't know her to look at her, but her poetry, she would write about this. And this has really had a huge sense of support 
for the terror that was going on. So I just want to read a couple of short lines from a really long poem of hers, which she wrote in 1935 to 1940. Requiem is the name of it. So at this point was at the height of the Stalinist terror where people were just being arrested and thrown into the gulags or killed anybody, anywhere, you know, and couldn't, for no rhyme or reason. She could have emigrated. She could have emigrated to France and she chose not to. She chose to remain in the country to be a witness to the horrors and to record it in her poetry. During that time, her first husband was killed by Stalin's police. Her second husband and her son were arrested and thrown into the gulag for years where her second husband died. So she's not like observing this at a distance. This is her life. There's just two little lines. No foreign sky protected me. No stranger's wing shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. And then at the beginning of the whole poem, in the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, Yezhov was the head of the secret police, so this is the worst period of time of arrests and death. In the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. That's when her son was in prison. Everyone who, who could even find out they had a relative in prison would go wait in line all day, every day, hoping to get a food parcel in. So she spent 17 months waiting in line. One day, somebody in the crowd recognized me because they wouldn't have known her, her face. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold, who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? Because they knew who she was. And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Nisargadatta said, listening is an act of love. So however our compassion, our wisdom, however it shows up, you know, the two need each other, can't exist without it. Just end with payment children. At the relative level, our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open space. So, thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.